Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Coffee Clutch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode 9, The Serpent. Written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Carol Banker, who in case you have forgotten, directed The Flying Forest and Do You Like Teeth in previous seasons. So as with the outline of previous episodes recently, we're following three basic storylines. And we'll go over them that way in the plot. Number one, we had... I guess what we can think of as the library storyline with Zelda, Alice, and Katie, the God Search with Quentin, Penny, and Julia, and what's happening in Fillory with Margot, Fenn, and Josh. So here's what the critics had to say about this episode. There's a lot of threads that seemed extremely disparate over the past few episodes, but now things seem to be gathering together and the pieces are starting to fall into place. The stories of the library's control of magic, Margot's birthright, and the monster's possession are still fairly separate. But what this episode does is bring in elements that cross between the threads. Although their issue is that, admittedly, sometimes it's still not always 100% smooth. And I think I see, you know, little bumps where we have to do things for convenience sake in order to get these plots to start merging. There are areas I think they're doing that better than others. So I really like, and I have all season, the way they've tied Alice's storyline into the library that feels seamless to me as though we are kind of transitioning that in together. We've brought Zelda and her backstory into it, and now we're starting to bring Katie and the Hedgewitch group as part of that plotline as well. Yes, Alice's storyline is definitely opening up for us, and we knew this was going to happen, right? The beginning of the season, you only got a few clips of Alice, but even those clips felt monumental. And it looks like the book, pardon the pun, will be opening up further and further for Alice towards the end of this season. And we knew that they were going to sort of place her at odds with the library. That was our inside view. And as much as she was the one to destroy the keys, she talks about that in this episode. This is never what she wanted. The library has gone extreme with this. And in fact, they state here that they're bordering on a totalitarian regime. And we saw that coming. I think everybody did. We did, but like we said, they are giving us some empathy through the character of Zelda. We are learning how people that maybe aren't necessarily bad have been pulled into this message and are starting to see now the library as a group is getting too extreme and too crazy. But perhaps for many of them, this started out with good intentions. They thought that they were doing a good thing. And now it's like, how do you break away from that? We get a better look this time at... Maybe Zelda hasn't really been in agreement and she's wanted to pull away from that, but how? How indeed. And now, knowing what we know at the end of this episode, that question has an exclamation point behind it. I do still think it's been a little rocky bringing the Hedge Witch faction into this, trying to tie them into the library. It makes sense that they are the oppressed group, the one that has always done with less magic. And so they're going to be the ones that want to rise up and revolt. It's just little things, like I said, for the sake of trying to make that a point. For instance, I read a lot of articles and reviews talking about how they could see it coming from a mile off that the Serpent Group wasn't actually controlled by the Hedge Witch Group. I mean, after all, it doesn't really make sense. Why would they want to take magic away from their own people? They're the ones trying to get more magic to fight back against them. Yeah, I didn't read it that way, though. I read it as it was another group maybe a third group, and this is right in the beginning of the episode, that was doing it, not the hedge witches. 
I think they stated at one point that it was a faction of them. So, yeah, that happens. You know, a small extremist faction breaks off from the rest of them and decides to start their own, take this to a level that the rest of them don't agree with. And especially since they're not organized, I guess it just felt really quick and almost as though we could see right through it as a way to try to pull that in more and also to get Zelda backing away from that. You know, I'm against this. I don't agree with any of this stuff that they're going through. Where I thought that they did a better job tying things in, we have been talking about how Fillory has felt like a completely separate story, a sidebar most of the season. Again, we were a little bit rushed to get there. I wish there was more weight put on Margot kind of being overthrown in this important banquet with all the leaders that were there. The result of it, though, I thought was great. It ties it back into the storyline, Margot's main purpose of how does she help Elliot, and winds up getting her pushed out of high king status, but in a way that we don't hate Fen for it. Yeah, the last couple of episodes, I was wondering, where does Margot go from here? But this Fen storyline, as it unfolded, I was wondering, where is this going? Where is this going? And what it resulted in is pushing Margot's story to the next level, having to traverse the desert, which you brought up in our spoiler section last episode. Yeah, I'm really happy that we're going to get that. I am too, but we know that next week will be a musical. So I'm hoping that that they don't lean too much into it just being a musical and they take care of this storyline that could be epic. This could be a struggle that they could go on for, I think, a few episodes this should happen. It shouldn't be one half an episode or one episode. And this was a really long, serious journey for Margot in the books. I'm not saying we have to do it the same way, but I too am hoping it's more of a symbolic theatrical way of depicting what was a very internal kind of struggle and quest for her. That's hard to do on TV. You can't get the character's point of view and internal thoughts. But maybe if we portray it this way, we can understand the feelings, what's underlying all of that. I mean, I can see it going in two directions. I'm a little nervous. But I think maybe my real disappointment is the cliffhangers we keep getting left with on this monster search. I was okay with a slow pace for a while, but now it's starting to feel like we're leaving questions unanswered just for the sake of having a cliffhanger. (laughs) Like we need to know something about this. I mean, we're learning more and more each week. Yeah, but actually what they did here was turn the whole thing on its head. Everything you thought you knew. You don't know is incorrect so we're back to square one not knowing what the purpose of these stones are at all to the point that it's really hard to even speculate on a theory we're gonna try and in our character review later on we're gonna talk about stones so stay tuned for that i actually really enjoyed this episode i felt the beats were really good and everyone's storyline felt interesting and it felt like there was a goal in mind and although i do have more questions they're more intrigued questions one example is julia well, now we have the binder. I wonder where that's going to go. And we'll go into that later. And Alice's struggle with that side of her that we have always brought up. We never depicted it as a separate her. We would always say there's this Alice that we've been seeing these the latest seasons. And we don't like her. We don't think she's good for the group. But now we got a visual of it. And we're also learning that it wasn't just that cocky bitch, <laughs> as she put it, that was the problem. The keys, in fact, were not destroyed by her. Yeah, it was laid out in black and white. I loved that scene. I can't wait to talk more about that. 
I fall somewhere in the middle on my thoughts of this episode. I like it a lot better than the last few where I felt they were just laying tracks and setting up way too many things that I didn't have answers to. If you think about it as weaving something together, the last few episodes felt like a bunch of different colored strings on a loom with no connection. This episode felt like where you start to weave them together. I still can't see any of the big picture, but I feel it trying to be pulled in. I feel set up happening for the future. Which the whole time we were aware that this would be happening. You have 13 episodes. There's plenty of time for setup. Oh, yeah. But we're at episode nine already. Time is flying by. Nine out of 13 is kind of a long stretch to not know how puzzle pieces fit in. Well, we've been doing this for nine weeks now. So before we jump into our plot, let's go over our new faces and places. We heard about her before, but this was the first time we got to meet Queen Rue, played by Rukia Bernarn. And she represented the Queen of West Loria. We already mentioned the Serpent. This was the terrorism group threatening the other hedges with bloodworms. Or so we thought. And we got all the lead up to, but still haven't met, the Foremost. A character that leads a southern nomadic tribe once ravaged by demonic spirits. He saved them all with ice axes. And that takes us to our new magic. We did learn these axes are special weapons he possessed that help you to expel possession. Margot realizes immediately this is the answer to saving Elliot. Further on magic, we got Reed's Mark. This is a symbol that stops a magician from being able to cast magic, even inadvertently. And of course, we got the spell that Alice was using to help try to get Harriet out of the mirror world and put her back together. That was Bjorn's electromagnetic spell. Before we go into the plot on Twitter, this weekend I had put up the bat signal to the Clatchers in regards to a Netflix show that I was excited to watch. My friends were telling me we should give it a try, and the previews looked like something we'd really be into. Just like the magicians, a little bit of magic, school, a magic school, which is always fun, witchcraft. We love that stuff. The show I'm talking about is The Order, and we gave it four episodes. So when we first started watching it, I ignored the first sign, which was the weird opening to this show. That's all I'll say because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. (laughs) But here's a fun fact, and this got me super psyched. Adam DeMarco is in this show. He plays Todd in The Magicians. And I was like, oh man, let's go. Maybe we should podcast about this. There's also another character, not him, whose name is Todd. The main character is a boy of a certain age, definitely younger than Quentin is supposed to be, but with longer blonde hair, has Quentin-esque tones. (laughs) And in fact, a lot of this felt like pulling plot ideas from the magicians, but not able to weave it together with the same magic that we're looking for. Which is so odd because I always said, Netflix television, the writing always seems to be better than most normal shows. But now that Netflix is pumping out so much content, I'm sure their ability to keep that quality so high must be hard. Well, The Magicians is one in a million where TV shows are concerned. I mean, the source material was... I adored the books when I read them. I could tell there was something very different they were doing here. The TV show has taken a slightly different direction and done their own thing with it. Equally incredible. So you can't recreate that in all fairness. That's why we love covering the show. Long story short, we watched four episodes. I think we gave it our best. We gave them the benefit of the doubt and we will not be finishing the show, The Order. There's just too much good television out there and not enough time. We got to put that away. So, fair warning to you guys. Give it a try if you want, but don't say we didn't tell you so. It also just reinforces, I know that sometimes 
especially around mid-season, we can be a little bit harder on a show that we're huge fans of. We're looking at it with a critical eye. But The Magicians is still one of the best shows out there on TV. Without further ado, let's get into our plot. We're going to open up with the storyline that perhaps we spent the most time on. The library, Katie, Zelda... The first scene, though, is the video message from the masked man representing a terrorist group called the Serpent. They send a message to the hedge witches of the world. This is your wake-up call. Magic has been turned down to a trickle, and it's time to call the herd. Then the man shows what they intend to do. He places something called a bloodworm inside the hostage's ear and tells him to defend himself. When the man tries to cast a spell, he starts smoking, seemingly burning from the inside. And the masked man says the results will be the same if you try to remove it. Basically, we're going to infect you with a parasite that makes you unable to cast magic. And this is what happens if you try to. I really like this scene. It reminded me of one of the shows we cover, Mr. Robot. (laughs) And the thought of having this worm be put inside of you creeps me out. It's so gross. (laughs) This cuts over to the library council, the order group we've been seeing, as they watch the threat video and decide upon a temporary course of action. Reed's mark. And this will stop the people from doing magic. Some of the council thinks the hedges would never submit to it as it takes away their defenses. But the leader, Everett, says it would be voluntary. Those infected and living in fear would submit to it. And once the serpent group is dealt with, the mark can be removed free of charge. Yeah, is anybody buying that? I actually had to watch that scene three times. We rewound it three times to see if we were missing something. I was like, do I understand this correctly? Well, that's what I mean. That's because it clearly didn't make sense from the get-go for the hedge witches to be doing this, to be going against their own kind and removing magic from their people. And then juxtaposed next to this order meeting, you can tell they're up to something. Oh, yeah, let's pull out this Reed's Mark solution, which is just a way to further oppress magic. Now the group they've been worried about that they can't figure out how to control the hedge witches will voluntarily give up their ability to do magic and they'll thank the library for it, thinking they're protecting them. I mean, that's that's oppressorship 101, <laughs> right? I get control of you and I get you to think that you gave this up on your own. And you will like it. <laughs> so this is what we meant a couple of episodes ago when we were thinking, is this library who thinks they're doing good going to get caught in their own snowball? Cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect and eventually turn into something that they probably never wanted to be. And we know for sure Zelda did not want to be this kind of group, but we don't know much about Everett except for the few episodes we've seen him in. I don't know if this was his plan all along, or is it just constantly trying to up the ante to retain the control they have? That's a little unclear, but I think that by the end of the episode, they're indicating Everett has always been the guy seeking to control, and he is putting forth this face to the other library leaders. Oh, we bear this heavy responsibility, but in his own mind, he was going to do whatever it took and not feel bad about it. That was just his way to manipulate people like Zelda who do have moral scruples into getting them to act, which is all the more unfortunate when we find out that Everett has actually been a mentor to Zelda from a time when she herself was a young hedge witch. Mm -hmm. I love that we're learning more about her. But let's back it up for a second and talk about Katie and Alice. Alice turns up at the apartment and urges Katie to let her in. She's heard they're fighting the library. In fact, people are calling her the new Marina, and she wants to help. We saw that coming. She goes on that they didn't go on their quest so good people could become slaves for a little magic. 
But Katie's really not listening yet and just punches her in the face. We got to get at least (laughs) one punch per season. I like it. Um, Alice is just taking the hits as they come, literally and metaphorically. She is really on this path to redemption. And she even devises a plan. You could use what she just did in Modesto to open up the magic pipes everywhere and let the magic back out, but only if you had a map of the entire system. They could drop a tracer in junction boxes and map its path. For this, they need to recruit a mole on the inside, and Pete thinks it would have to be someone high up. He also says everyone has their price, and then they shift so beautifully to Zelda, who they're showing quite clearly what her weak spot is. She returns to her office and places blood on the mirror beacon, speaks in French, and the light flashes into the mirror, where she's able to see Harriet inside. Harriet tells her, find Alice. And then we see that Alice is also able to see Harriet in her mirror, telling her she's in pieces. And Alice realizes they have their leverage. Yeah, at the same time, she's getting a phone call from her mother, who is seeing the third piece of Harriet in her mirror. That's crazy. So Anybody that was involved in conjuring up that beacon spell that we've been using yeah. so it split it up i like that twist that was clever and I, there's a reason for it to happen anyone who is involved you know this could easily be something where they just make it up it just it splits you in three but it all makes sense to us yeah i know that people have been at times frustrated with alice's character this season but i really think that this is the plot line they've been doing the best with the pacing feels right how they bring other things into it zelda's relationship with harriet it all feels very natural to me and the progression of the character arcs as they move through it also feel spot on i mean zelda is really desperate at this point she meets with alice who says the beacon summoned the true harriet Something must have happened that shattered her into three pieces. Putting her back together will be very risky, but she can do it for a price. Katie explains they want the nearest pipe junction box, or this whole situation will eventually blow up into a war, and Zelda agrees to the deal. Privately, Pete also tells Katie the news he got about a local safe house. In ten minutes, everyone in there was infected and they all died. The point of this is he himself wants to get Reed's mark, but Katie talks him out of it for now. She is already having to start to step up into this leadership position and make difficult decisions. It's her place. One that I'm sure she's probably going to regret later. Add that to the list of the Modesto bombing. It's not easy being on top. We also get a little look at Dean Fogg as Alice goes to meet with him. And he tells her the library has asked for a list of potential hedge witches from the schools. In fact, it's gotten so bad he's considering resigning. He's tired of the fight. They really quickly brushed over this, and I understand we don't have time to go fully into it, but that was a big jump for him to take. It felt like until Alice talked him back into it, he was done trying to push back against them. It wasn't doing any good. But she convinces him to continue helping, and that they need his lab, magic, and secrecy in order to save Harriet. While setting up the spell, she also tells him and Katie that once she starts, they need to seal the lab and remain outside. This Bjorn spell is unstable, but after all, she is a phosphoromancer and confident she can do it. She sets up the beacon so that it refracts into all three mirrors and begins casting. It looks to be working as one Harriet starts walking out of a mirror. However, she is urging Alice to stop, and Alice isn't looking. Desperate, she finally pulls Alice out of the circle, and she realizes the prism overloaded. When she tries to enter it again, it thrusts her back, spits out the cracked prism, and another Alice appears, saying, oops, you fucked that one up. This whole time I was thinking, 
Isn't this a massive oversight that Alice doesn't know how to read sign language? I mean, Alice is such a smart witch. Isn't there some way she could have overcome that? Clearly, what Harriet has to say is very important. I think that really added to the stress that we were going to be under watching it. Mm. The stakes were even higher. We knew it meant a lot by the body language of Harriet. And normally we have the luxury of knowing what she's saying when she's talking to Zelda or Katie. But this time we don't. Even having closed caption on, we don't have that. It made us feel just as much in trouble as Alice was. Yeah, and highlighted what happens when Alice is in situations like this. She becomes so narrowly focused. Kind of what you were saying. She knows best. This spell is what's important right now, Harriet. (laughs) I don't have time for whatever you're trying to tell me. To her detriment, although clearly this needed to happen. This was a journey that Alice needed to go on to confront herself. So probably for the best that the prism fractured her. Because what we get now is kind of a showdown between what I'm going to call the light Alice and the dark Alice. I don't want you to think of this as good or bad, as good or bad, because that's clearly not the case. And I love that they made that evident midway through. It felt like good versus bad in the beginning because we were basing our knowledge directly off of the way Alice was reacting to it. And, and that like, oh, was that's important. the bad one that we've been mad at. Yeah, that was important because that's how that part of Alice feels. And she's looking at the situation all wrong. And this led me back to some of the really great things that Carl Jung talked about in his theories of psychology and people. Part of what he stressed a lot was the fact that we all have this dual nature, an anima and an animus, a light and a dark But it's not good and bad. It's just two sides to ourselves that are both equally necessary. And the times where we get in trouble are where we're trying to deny the shadow parts of ourselves. We're looking at it as bad and we're separating it off. And the only way to grow and become complete is to actually accept those things and reintegrate them back into our personality. And that's the journey Alice had to go on here, right? Absolutely. And I hope on the other side, we get a more stable Alice. A whole Alice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right off the bat, Dark Alice says she can improve on the application. You're doing it all wrong, you dum-dum. And she refers to the other, other Alice as the mouse inside of me. So much contempt. In fact, she doesn't see the point in keeping her around at all. Well, Light Alice kind of feels the same. She's ruined everything. So despite Harriet's protests, she knocks her out and pushes her into the mirror world. Inside of what looks like sort of an alternate mirror library in a cell very much like what she was in. Harriet keeps trying to send her warnings and she can't understand. But finally, she realizes she's telling her to go get the other Alice. Light Alice is reluctant thinking she destroyed her life with her crazy ideas, but she goes in anyway. And now we get this really beautiful scenery where she's inside. What they visually tell us right away is the mirror world because it's in black and white. It's snowing much like it was when Zelda went in there. But it's almost like your mind puts forth an image to flesh that out because it does look like the library where Alice has been kept. There are cells, there are books on the ground. I was reading the library as well. But my brain was saying, well, it could also just be break bills, just with a cage in it. But then I remembered they had three mirrors, one from her mother, one from the library, Zelda's office, which was right down the hall. She said it was a refracted mirror image of the library. 
And maybe this is Alice's version of that, you know, like where Alice was being kept was in that room full of cells. So it's the refracted image of that area. But even the visual scenery gives us cues of the struggle that's going on, I think, because the floor is all black and white tiles, mm. you know, the the two sides of Alice, the dichotomy confronting each other. But then the fact that it's all really a little more gray than that, right? The whole background is gray. And the more we approach this conversation between the two of them, the more we see that. They each start pointing out each other's negatives. Light Alice says, she's an egomaniac who destroyed the keys. Dark Alice says, well, no one else was looking out for her, so she had to. And it's actually their IQ that alienated others. Our IQ did that. Your arrogance. Oh, I'm so smart. Look at me. Oh, love me, love me. I won't exist unless you love me. I'm so sorry. I'm smart. It's not you. It's me. I'm so sorry. Right. That's exactly why you destroyed the keys, because you're such a goddamn genius. (laughs) I didn't do that. You did. That's bullshit. My arrogance didn't destroy the stupid keys. Fear did. You did. Out of fear, this wasn't arrogance that brought her to do that. And we talked about that earlier in the season, right? Mm. Alice's fear of magic and the power inside of her and what it could do. And she thought that translated to the potential for magic to really be bad, which was the library's message. You know, somebody (laughs) needs to watch this and control this because people can't be trusted. But she points out self-destruction would be a sad waste of both of them as they still have no idea what they're capable of. Well, you know, that's a concept that scared her more than anything in the past. No, I don't know what I'm capable of and I don't know if I want to. But yet it still intrigues her too. It's almost like until I know I'm never fulfilling my potential, becoming actualized, all of these things that by reintegrating that part of herself, she could do. She could be this ultimate version of Alice that she was always supposed to be. Because we still have no idea what we're actually capable of. And so she finally realizes they have to reunite. Maybe some of that seemed obvious and straightforward, but I thought it was just a beautiful way to wrap up the arc that she's been going on. And to boot, after that, a black book falls to the floor, labeled Binder. Do you think that's symbolic that all the other books on the floor were white and unlabeled and then this book falls out of nowhere that says the binder? Why did it come to her? Why did she find it here? Well, the word itself, binder, in theory, this is a stretch, but the light and dark versions of Alice are finally binding together and maybe maybe they'll be working together. Mm, Almost like that's what it took to find the book in the first place. And then in essence, them getting delivered the binder and being able to help their crew again, and this time help the one who they truly failed next to dying, she lost all of her power, is, you know. You just made me think of something. Was Julia actually kind of split during that process? Does she need to bind those parts of herself? That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's what you're saying. I love that idea. She has to find that part of her again. So that, I mean... It could mean so many things there. One could say it looked a little easy, but if you break it down that way, it's anything but easy that they got delivered the binder. If she had to go through that whole intense journey in order to be given that book, no, that's, that's a hard thing to do. This was just the culmination of that. Well, and we see both Alice's pick it up and return to the lab, and together they reunite and are able to perform the spell. So before they pick it up, the light Alice says, we shouldn't. And the dark Alice 
says we should. Mm-hmm. She picks it up and they start walking towards the camera. That's when you see Light Alice, and I watched it a couple times, give us a face. It was, uh, how do I explain this face? She went from feeling scared about the binder to a little smile and a wink. It wasn't a wink, but it felt it's that kind of face. Mm. So I'm wondering what that meant. And I may be reading too far into this, but Clatchers, if you have the time, check out that scene again. I wonder what that means. Maybe in a sense, they were almost starting to reunite, even though they hadn't been put back together. She was realizing these aren't two different halves of me. I can't separate them. They're, it's all me. They were starting to bind. Yeah. You know, um, and this side of me, I don't have to be afraid of. If I can take that in, now I'm in control of it. Meanwhile, while this is happening, Katie meets with Zelda, who tells her they're a lot alike. Her mother was a hedge witch too. She died when Zelda was 10. Her mentor, Everett, found her in an alley, gave her shelter, education, and believed in her. She will never need to do those things again, that she did at that time, but her choices now seem worse. And that really wraps up everything we've kind of been thinking about her, right? He seemed to be a savior at the time, pulled her out of what seemed like a horrible situation. She thought she was going to do some good, and then she started to slowly see what they were like from the inside. Not so great. That's why she agreed to give the location of the pipe junction to Katie. She trusts that she will work to keep things fair and safe. Because she has the capacity to sit with the woman who caused the death of the man she loved to try to understand her. And so true. I hadn't even thought about it from that angle until she said that. Then Alice emerges with a reunited Harriet. Zelda thanks them, telling Fogg the list is indefinitely misplaced. (laughs) And she talks to Harriet. Harriet says she has a few things to take care of, and then she would like to spend some more time with her mother. More importantly, though, when she was inside the mirror world, she could see through all the mirrors. She saw everyone, and Zelda's being lied to. The bloodworm is not being spread by a hedge. It's Everett. He's doing it to spread fear, get the fringe in line or out of the way, so all that's left are magicians who rely on the library. At this, Zelda warns Harriet not to do anything crazy. She tells her she won't yet, but she needs to take care of Everett. So it seems Harriet has had a little bit of a change of heart. Maybe she respects her mother, Zelda, a little more, now seeing everything that Zelda's been going through and seeing that her thoughts aren't that wacko. They're just different. And then also seeing how everyone else is acting and she needs to help her mother. Yeah, and we thought it would be the combination of that mother-daughter relationship and finding out Zelda's intentions, how it got to this point, that would make us feel for her. It's interesting, though. We assumed we'd see it all through Alice's perspective. To get a little bit of that through Katie as well, I think, starts to bring that character into the fold in a way that I appreciate. Absolutely. At the end of last episode, when we were reading the synopsis for this one... We were wondering, how does Katie see Zelda? Hmm. How does that story work out? And I think it worked out very well. And she's smoking a pipe. (laughs) I love it. What do you think Take Care of Everett's going to mean? Does she need to assume head leadership of the library, overthrow him? Perhaps. I think she's going to have to be clever. She's not going to have it as easy as Fen did (laughs) as far as overthrowing. But if anyone can do it, I believe Zelda can. After all, the library may be needed to take out this beast. Well, I said it again, this monster. (laughs) We already took out the beast. Well, if there's more good intention people like her within the Order, and she exposes whatever it's actually been doing, perhaps they won't want him in charge anymore. Perhaps they'll side with her. Yeah, 
There's th- is that here's wish- wishing. wishful thinking. Yeah, and I we- mean, maybe Zelda's going to get... Um, no. We might have to... Not killed, but we might have to save her. I don't know. We still haven't also factored in that wild <clears throat> card of the McAllisters who have been missing in action for quite some time. Oh, yes. And could really upset the situation. So this Everett thing might actually be him working for the McAllisters. Mm. Which just adds a whole nother layer of cake. And we have a comment along those lines. Melissa wrote in to say, We get this backstory about Everett that he saved Zelda. Do we think Everett is Harriet's father? I don't think he's the father, but I think he is a father figure to her. Within the story that she told Katie and us, she was inevitably saved when she lost her family. And I believe that may have been him. So that's a close enough relationship. I mean, he doesn't have to actually biologically be her father. Although it could be. We're going to move on to the next plot line, which is the God Search, where Quentin, Julia, and Penny are looking for clues about the binder when the monster returns and tells them he can feel how many pieces are missing. Just one. Only Enyalea stands in the way of anatomical perfection. He orders the group to find him, bring the final piece, and threatens to kill Elliot's body if they take too long. You know, if I was part of the crew, I would have definitely been one of the others who found something more important to do. And stay away from this goddamn monster. (laughs) I feel so bad for Q, Penny, and Julia. They're the only ones that have to deal with this guy. Yeah, although on the funny side, we do get the Elliot Monster shirt of the day. This time, a T-Rex with a bottle of wine and a French beret. It says, Winosaur. I love his shirts. (laughs) I hope they sell them. Oh, that would be awesome. Further, I wanted to discuss briefly how the monster has changed for us. And this is probably me always hoping for the more positive of characters. The beginning of this season, I was starting to think there's more to this monster. Maybe he's not a bad guy. Just all that was left of his personality is this need and this want that humans have. But times a thousand. But the deeper we're getting into it now, after we almost had a kind of touching moment with Q and him, It's starting to feel more and more like he is the bad guy, especially at the end of this episode. I know, and I don't know if I like that being spun around. I liked the gray area they were creating, and now it's really hard to take any direction from mythologies and stories we know. It seems to be there are only four pieces involved for whatever this is, and it's not reconstructing a body. So that takes out the Prometheus story, the Chrono story, Pandora's box... All of those, there's more or less than four pieces. These gods that he has assembled, Bacchus, Iris, Heka, and Enyaleus, don't seem to fit together from any ancient stories that we know of. And we know the pieces were empty at one time. And these gods put something of the monster into them based off of the psychic DVR that we received. If he's not building a body, what is it that he's trying to construct, you know? A weapon. Oh. I don't know. Mm. I honestly don't know. I mean, his body is technically a weapon. It's something I'm really excited to find out, though. Well, in the next scene, while looking through the library for info on the binder, Quentin argues they can't just destroy the stone, as Penny suggests, because that wouldn't save Elliot. He's sure they'll figure something out, but Penny doesn't have confidence, as he came from a timeline where they didn't figure it out. This is Penny's suspicion that's kind of been seeded throughout these storylines. Coming from the timeline he does affects the way he views the group and what they're able to accomplish. Yes, and we saw reflections of that in previous episodes. If you recall, you were bringing up the fact that Penny often said that Margot was trouble. She's making decisions that are going to make them fail. 
And now we know why. It's like he's watching it happen all over again. And especially towards Quentin, of course, when he comes from a timeline where he didn't just fail, he became the beast. His trust level isn't the same. He's still going along with all of these plans, but he's suggesting maybe a different course of action now than we would have considered. I wonder if that's something we should be listening to. I mean, of course, we need to find a route that's going to get us our Elliot back, right? But he has a different plan that we'll see in a few minutes. Back at the apartment, the monster shows the group the man he has kidnapped. He had to try 19 fake psychics <laughs> until he found a real one, Alan. This monster watching TV is just trouble. <laughs> yeah, and I love how it fits in so well. It wasn't random because we've known for a while now that that's what he's been doing with his time, just watching human television. There's a man in the TV that deserves his wrath. Turns out maybe it was a fake psychic. But there's a reason for this. He thinks the man can help him remember his past life. However, once the monster starts to connect with him, Alan convulses and slumps over dead. The monster is unconcerned, saying he'll get another, stronger one. But Penny volunteers himself. After all, he is a psychic with a strong mind. A skill I always forget. It's easy because in the beginning they played that up a lot. Him hearing voices, being inside yeah. other people's minds. But since Penny 40 was taken away from us for a while, we hadn't had the opportunity to see that. Also, didn't he get a tattoo that helped him? Or no, that was a traveling tattoo. Yeah, well, and that's a question that keeps coming up for me too that I mentioned at the time. Penny got that tattoo that bound him to the earth. So he wasn't going to physically travel. He was just going to astral project his mind into places. But Marina removed that from this Penny 23. So he actually is able to physically travel. And more and more, his skills are being used in a way that potentially could be dangerous for 23. Julia realizes this, in fact, and separately tries to talk him out of it. But seeing he is determined, she promises if he lives, he can buy her dinner. So we were right. There was the beginning of something going on between these two after the ritual he had to perform with her. They almost kiss until the monster returns ready. Did you see Q's face? I feel so bad for this guy. He had a cigarette in his mouth. He looked so defeated. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's just like, It's like oh he's babysitting God. him half the time. And I love how they show this visually. Penny is taken inside of his mind where they travel to an empty field. The monster knows it's important but isn't sure why. Penny is really adept here. He gently guides him to remember. And he recalls there was an altar, a lot of rope, four bowls, and the stones inside where they put a part of him into each. They were scared of him, meaning Bacchus, Iris, and Heka, and they needed Enuleus in order to perform this. So to make him come, they offered a girl near death. Apparently, Enuleus liked sacrifices that were too, too weak, weak to, to fight. fight. You're not strong, Enuleus. You're a sad, perverse little man. The monster really shows contempt for this at the so-called God of War. And while he is busy... Penny slips off to a door behind them. When he walks through, he finds the real Elliot. It turns out this is the happy place, and this was part of his goal in coming here. That's pretty amazing. That is. Elliot tells him the secret he has discovered, which, of course, we don't get to hear. <laughs> Hi. Thank God you saw the door. No, it's me. It's me. It's the real me. It's Elliot. Okay. This is a mind palace situation, and we don't have a lot of time, and I have some extremely major shit to tell you. He's going to remember the secrets are all here. It's only a matter of time, he says, before the monster remembers it too. But before they can talk more, the monster starts calling out for Percy 23. Percy 23. <laughs> Percy 23. I love oh, that. He's 
Hale Appleman is just <laughs> knocking it out of I the park. I love him, man. He's awesome. He's disturbed when he can't find him. And running back, Penny says he was just exploring. The monster is doubtful, but wakes, telling the others he knows now who to find, that is to Enulias's tastes. This whole thing was helpful, but Penny starts convulsing and passes out. Is that a result of the information that Elliot gave him or being scared that he was found out? No, I think the monster was messing with him at that time. Mm. He's grabbing him, he's threatening him, and he's putting some power to at least hurt him and scare him. Yeah. But more importantly, what did you think about this flashback? The fact that the monster is actually having feelings and he's confused about it. He's like, why is this making me so upset? Well, yeah, and the way he holds certain things in contempt, like in Elias's behaviors, again, they're just doing so much to make you feel for him that I can't Help. imagine he's going to be all bad. And that's it. Maybe I'm just hanging on to this one string, but I, th- I got to believe he wasn't all bad. I don't beginning. think they would be putting those things in there for no reason, right? Also, something to note, the way Penny is speaking to him before he says the last thing with, look around, maybe there's something else here. That was obviously for him so he can sneak away. But the way he's coaching him through this, it felt like he was very adept and very caring in this situation. Coaching him through, keeping him from freaking out. Not sure why. That's okay. This field, was there a house or anything else here? Almost as if, you know, you, when you're doing therapy and um, hypnotist therapy, you have to coach people through. Think about the bulls. Anything inside them? I just really love the penny there. You're remembering a a difficult event, yeah. Percy there, excuse me. Percy 23. Well, luckily, he does wake up after this ordeal, and he tells the others he saw the real Elliot in there. He knows everything the monster can't remember, and he's, he's not, not trying, trying to, to rebuild his body. That's not what the stones are. That's not what they're for. It's so much worse than that. And of course, we've discussed we don't really know what that means. I'm not sure that ancient mythology or anything should be guiding us anymore, but there's been so many things about that sewn into the storyline that I'm not ready to give up on it yet. Thus, we will get to it in our character review. But for now, we're going to turn to our last section in Fillory, where Margot questions Fen regarding the Napster's message about her destiny. And Fen hedges it. Hedges. <laughs> They're interrupted by Josh bringing in one of the many messenger bunnies, now speaking again, of which Q sent a whole group. Elliot alive, he tells them. Josh explains that he's stuck in a mine prison while the monster controls him. And Margot can hardly overcome her shock as he tells her the other random events they got word about, such as a Florian clock tree that sprouted up, leaving an entire village stuck in time. Most importantly, (laughs) though, he has planned a state dinner where they will bring leaders together to solve the Florian crisis. She can't leave before the banquet as one of the guests will be the foremost, the leader of the nomadic tribe who he saved with ice axes. Realizing this could be a way to save Elliot, Margot is overcome with joy, and her and Josh start making out and then have sex. Okay. I know Josh is smitten, and when you're in love, denial can be a very strong (laughs) pill. But doesn't he find it curious that right away, as soon as she finds out Elliot is alive, she changes back to the old? I think he's probably thinking of it just as this huge mental weight that's been bringing her down. And it's more like... He is her hero in this moment for Mm. bringing her news that there could be a way to save him. Do you think she really loves him? I mean, the end of the episode, it felt like it. I think the feelings are way more real than we had anticipated. Yeah. And I wasn't sure about (laughs) 
their relationship in the beginning, I think that it's not that I don't like them together. The personalities match really well. It's the way they started this whole thing, almost like this quick, bizarre afterthought to the werewolf storyline. And so it, it never really had a chance to sink in for me. And then she was back in Fillory trying to rule the kingdom. She was worried about Elliot. It was just a bizarre way that I don't think mentally I was on board with it. Me neither. I never saw that coming. I never put them together. But it is growing on me. This Josh that we have lately, as compared to season two, is a lot more confident, therefore a lot more attractive. And he's supportive of her. I mean, he has confidence that this crazy plan she's intending, this journey she's going to go on, yeah, he would love to go with her and help her. But as soon as she says, I can handle this, he's like, yeah, I know you can. You know, she needs him more to stay there and help Fen run the kingdom. So I like their kind of understanding of each other, their strengths and weaknesses and how they can be there for one another. We knew, based on some book knowledge and other things from a few episodes ago, that this character, the foremost, was going to come up. So I'm happy we're going to see that journey. And I'm happy we did go back to this character of Rue the Queen of West Loria, even though it was very brief before the banquet, she pulls Fen aside for a private conversation and divulges she got a prophecy from the Napster too that said for the health of her land, she must aid Fen in dethroning the High King. She is willing to forge a peace with Fillory only when Fen takes the throne. Then and only then. Wow, okay. I'm just saying, there are so many paths. During the feast... You will order the castle doors open, whereupon my men will enter and, and chop enjoy off the dessert her head. course. Did you really think I was going to say that? Hoped. Fen tries to talk her way out of it very unsuccessfully, and Rue says a ruler never walks away of their own accord; they must be crushed. But then she pulls out sort of this convenient alternative. Oh, there is one other way, though: eternal banishment. <laughs> you don't actually have to kill her. She tells Fen she has until dinner to decide or she will be killed along with Margot. Now, I know this is supposed to sound really bad as an alternative to being killed, but do we think this really will be eternal banishment or is there going to be a loophole around that? The only thing that made me feel that way is that she got branded. Mm. Those don't go away. I mean, magic could take that away, but it just felt so final. Yeah, It did. Them doing that kind of took it to another level. I just can't imagine Margot is, more than any of the rest of the group, so invested in Fillory. They're still caught up in everything Everything else else they need to solve. And she is the one that said it's important to stay here and rule this kingdom. All of season two, she was there. We have to remember that. And she's doing this for Fillory. She's going out, well, for Elliot too. But even as she's getting taken away, she's like, wait! (laughs) Listen to her and be nice to her. Be nice to her. (laughs) Well, and if we think back to her birthright message, they were saying her destiny would be to go it alone for a while, but not forever. How touching was that scene with her and Fen? I did not see that coming when she was walking up to Fen. I was like, oh, here we go. Shit. Even Fen was caught off guard. This podcast is brought to you by Care Of. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs to your door. With the winter blues coming to an end, it's finally time to get back into a routine that empowers you to feel your healthiest. 
Give yourself an extra boost this season, whether you're looking for more energy, better sleep, to maintain stress, or something else just to make you feel your healthiest. Clatchers, the process is simple, and it's actually fun. So even if you're not planning on doing it right away, you should take this quiz to find out what you're lacking, health-wise, vitamin-wise. Tell them about you. Answer a few easy questions about your goals, lifestyle, and values. After this fun and visual quiz, they will recommend the right vitamins and supplements, and you can even add a remove as you see fit. And every vitamin, they give you so much information behind it. Why do they suggest it? They give you reasons why. Backed up by product research, sources, product specs, and even where they get their product, what part of the country, how they're built. You have the knowledge of everything as opposed to just going to an aisle and picking something because you read about it somewhere. This is actually built for you. And speaking of what you were saying, Jason, did you know 90% of people fall short of FDA recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient? I'm sure they do. So you could easily find that out. And then they send you these personalized daily packs. You receive a box each month that you can adjust or cancel at any time. And in addition to the daily vitamin packs, they also have these quick sticks. They're pocket-sized and easy to transport. So I know we picked one for extra energy that I found to be amazing for easy on the go. Christina and myself always try to remain healthy, but it takes a lot of energy. Every day you got to think about it. What should I do here? What should I do about this? With these daily packs, you don't have to think anymore. It's already done for you. You just open up the pack and you take what's there. Plus, you can download the iPhone app to unlock savings, set reminders, and learn how to boost your health. And best of all, a portion of every sale goes toward the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. For being a CKC Clasher, you get 50% off your first month. That's unheard of. We've done 15, we've done 20. 50% off. <laughs> Just go to TakeCareOf.com and enter CoffeeClatch50 for 50% off. That's TakeCareOf.com and CoffeeClatch, K-L-A-T-C-H, and the number 50 for 50% off. Everyone has a different path to personal health. Care of will help you find yours. Let them help take care of you. Support our podcast by supporting Care Of. By the way, how amazing was Brittany in all of these scenes, even in the beginning of the episode, when Margot's asking her, you know, you were in there for 13 hours, the mind meld or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both of them. I thought they did really well together. I had a question about this, though. Next... When Josh overhears what Rue is telling her, he runs to share the information with Margot that Fen is planning to overthrow her. Margot says to hold off the traitor until she talks to the foremost. But when Margot questions Tick about him, he says the foremost would never come here. He's a sworn enemy of Fillory that wouldn't interact with the High King. Was Josh just mistaken? I mean, this seems like a really obvious conclusion as soon as they ask Tick, yeah, there's no way he would be here. Well, I thought that was an important point because he seemed very sure about it. And yet Josh was so confident this was the answer. Yeah, quite an oversight. Exactly. The fact that he thought for sure he was going to be there. When you send out these invites, are you, is there an RSVP? <laughs> like, did he not send an RSVP? They're a nomadic try. Maybe they just don't get the mail. And maybe you talk to the Florians that serve you. He surely must have talked to Tick. By the way, Tick is just kind of like back in Tick. his normal <laughs> role and totally subservient again. Not really, though. It feels creepy the whole time. And Margot doesn't trust him. He's such a sleazy... 
Oh, and he's never going to do anything. No. I can't go on this trip. I'm uh, allergic to sand. Uh, uh, uh. I'm allergic to sand. I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> he's playing it really well, though. No, I, and I love him on screen because I love to hate him. Yeah. Well, and as soon as Margot hears this, she realizes this is a job that she has to do. Nobody else is going to be able to do it. Do you think the eye will come into play? It must. That's what I mean. We should write a list. There are so many <laughs> things still just dangling out there. Ooh, don't say I and dangle in the same. Ooh, okay. Well, thus, Margot goes to confront Fen and tells her to do it. Overthrow her now. They're both crying, but Margot says this will get her the one thing that can save Elliot. So Tick announces the banishment as Fen sits on the throne. He has her arms branded and she's led out of the castle by guards. On the way out, she orders the court to listen to Fen, and Josh runs to say goodbye, offering to go with her. She insists he needs to stay and help rule the kingdom, so he gives her his parting gifts. Danishes that will keep, a new map, and an iPod loaded with 80s pop songs, <laughs> and promises to wait for her. Another very touching scene, topped off with great music as she slowly walks away. I love that kind of just confident stroll through the doors. And again, I think I said this at the top. I hope this journey lasts more than one episode. I think this could be an interesting journey. Or at least they find a way to do it satisfactorily. I find it so hard to imagine really conveying all of those depths in this way that they're planning on doing it. But I don't know. I know it has to be different from the books. So they might have a fresh take on it that makes sense. So as usual, this leaves us with many questions, a lot of which we've gone over through the course of the episode. Who's on the other side of the door that Penny opened? Sorry, I still have that question from two episodes ago. Well, I want to know. I I'm not going to even get into all of those former questions. But from this episode, we talked about how exactly Zelda would get Everett out of the way. If this is going to be an attempt for her to lead the council, does this mean she's going to come completely over to our side? Will it be all of us in this united front? What did these scenes signal for Alice's course in the future? And she's kind of cleared by the library for everything she's done. But does this mean they're just going to let her go free now? I mean, I'm sure that's what Zelda would want. But if the others have a say in it, she still owes the rest of her life in service to them. And if she does stay, will the group ever forgive her and be able to take her back as one of them? She's got that book. I think she's got... Some leverage and, I mean, in this one episode, she's pretty much rebuilt her relationship with Katie. They walk off. She's like, let's get something to eat. Mm -hmm. She's proving herself for sure to them and to us. Will we find out the answers to the binder? What does that mean for Julia? And what is going on with the creation of a non-monster body? Whatever it is. Very intrigued. Well, that wraps up the plot and takes us to our rating. Each episode, we give a rating on a scale of 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, less is worse, more is better. So Jason, what do you give episode 9? I really enjoyed this episode, and we're starting to see a trend here. If Sarah Gamble, McNamara, or Mike Moore are intimately involved in the writing of that episode, we tend to really love it. And As this does is, IMDb. Yeah, and this is one of those. Looking at my other scores... And knowing that a timeline in place, I gave an 8.6. I want to go 8.5 rations for this episode. It's, it's right up there. I truly enjoyed it. I love the storylines. I love where our characters are headed. And I'm super excited for next week. Yeah, as I said at the top, there's still a little bit of disparity going on for me. A lot of 
questions and open-ended stuff, but this episode really helped to start tying them together more. I'm feeling more confident in the future direction, so I'm going to give it an eight rations. And let's head on over to the water cooler and find out what our clatchers were thinking. On Twitter, via at CKC Podcast, we asked our clatchers, who is your MVM for this episode? Our four options were Alice, Penny, Margot, and Katie. Coming in at fourth place with 4% is Katie. She's starting to find her stride this season. I mean, she was gone for a couple of episodes. We were wondering what's going on. And she seems to be the only one having issues of kind of missing her alter ego from the top of this season. Yeah, and I think from the time of losing Penny as well, there's just so many things that are forcing her to question her own identity. Stepping into this new role of being kind of leader of the hedge witches is giving her a newfound purpose. But in this episode, it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of her deciding to do that. We also got to see, though, the revealing more of Zelda's personality through her interactions with her. So I thought it was interesting, but I can see where it didn't push things forward nearly as much as the other characters. Second and third place were close, though. Third, with 24%, went to Margot. And again, she didn't have her moments until the very end of the episode, although they were so impactful. Just yet again, all season long, making those tough decisions internally saying, I'm going to be thrown out of this position that means so much to me, banished from Mm. Fillory forever, having to go off into the desert on impossible quest, but I have to do it to save Elliot. That's just not even a thought in Margot's mind. I have a feeling though, next episode is really going to be the Margot episode. She is such a strong person and I really enjoy watching her on screen. The decisions she makes and how quickly she makes them. She's a true ruler. And second place with 29% is Penny. And we had a lot of votes this week. Thank you so much, Clatchers. This is amazing. Penny 23 finally proving himself. We've always loved Penny 40, right? But this is a whole other thing. I'm enjoying 23 on screen. It's Percy. Percy 23. (laughs) Talk about sacrifice. He just saw someone die with the monster trying to get in his mind. And Penny right away, no hesitation, says, I know someone me. I know. In our last interview with Arjun, I know he was very reluctant to label Penny as selfless. Though we saw the deeds of Penny 40 moving more and more in that direction. And this does seem to be a common thread in his character as a person as we see it in Penny 23. So like it or not, I mean, maybe that is a main staple of who he is. But coming in first place with a resounding 43% Mm. is Alice. This was definitely her episode. She found herself, or at least, yeah, found herself is the right word, right? Understood what was happening more, saw. I mean, if you had the ability to speak to the other sides of you and really talk it out and realize, oh, that wasn't you that made that bad decision. That was me because of fear, not because I was cocky. And it's all me. Yeah. And I just need to accept that. Yeah, this is the first time she has won a poll solo. Actually, the Clatchers have really spread it out so far this season, which is amazing. If you look at the winners, episode one went to Marina, two went to Julia, three went to Quentin, four to Margot, five to Elliot, six to the Alice-Sheila combo, seven to Katie, eight to Fenn, and nine to Alice. That is amazing. Look at that. Everyone has had the chance to shine. So I think based on our comments, it's obvious that I'm giving it to Alice for the episode. Now, I am in trouble with my own rules here because 
While she was grouped up with Sheila in episode six, overall, this would be my third Alice vote of the season so far. Rules were made to be broken. Well, I'm okay unless I want to give it to her again at some point. I think you might have to. And then I'll use the double up as my excuse. (laughs) I as well am going to go with Alice. This was her episode. She saved one of our favorite characters, Harriet, and she saved herself. And she got the binder. And she's a kick-ass chick. Oh, hell yeah. How many more things does she need to do to get a vote in? (laughs) Plus, she's just looking great in every episode. So let's go over to our Clatcher comments and see what they had to say about MVM. Elliot Todd says, In this episode, Margot found out Elliot was alive, learned from Josh the foremost could help, chose to step down from high kingship, revived her relationship with Josh, and began her journey to the desert with her lizard. So much development in so little time. (laughs) MVM indeed. Oh, that is so true. But like we said, I just think you're going to see even more from Margot next episode. And I certainly can't just vote Margot all season long. (laughs) So I'm glad you did. Isaiah says his favorite part, besides any time Alice's bitchy half spoke, was that Katie was smart enough to put away her personal feelings and let the most powerful magician she knows help. Quentin should take a cue from Katie. Q should take a cue from Katie. Sorry for the bad dad joke. <laughs> you should say bad Jason joke. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm full of those. I actually thought that was a good one. Bert says, ah, oh, too many important characters. Because I'm a hopeless romantic and I didn't think I'd like seeing 23 with Julia, it works. My vote's for Penny because honestly, I'm ready to move on with the Elliot monster already. For the love of Ember, let's do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, Agreed. Amir says, amazing episode. It was the type where a lot of things were happening at once, although the Magicians does a fine job at balancing everything. Alice has my vote this week. Can we just forgive her already? And is it bad I like the egotistic side of her? No, I mean, that's the way Olivia Dudley performed that, right? Just so amazing to see both halves. Yes, and it's not bad, especially in these scenes, because she's not doing anything nefarious. But she is holding all the confidence, and that's why you like her. It, and it, it isn't the bad side of her. It's not like seeing Niffin right. Alice, which was truly this other thing. It's those sides of ourselves that sometimes we can be a little scared of. By the way, I watched this scene yet again. A little behind the scenes. First half of this episode we recorded last night, second half tonight. I watched that scene with Alice picking up the binder again, knowing that I spoke about on the podcast her looking at the screen, the camera. She does indeed look at the camera and give us a little face. And I really want to know what the hell that means. Did they do a switcheroo? No, I, I think, like I said, they were already starting to become Bind. of one mind okay. about that. Margarita said, I loved, loved, loved this episode. Margot is the MVM. She gave up her throne willingly in order to save Elliot and made sure those that remained helped Fen. That's some selfless badassery right there. Long live the true high king of our hearts. Meg says, thank goodness 23 made it through this episode. I was afraid he was going to be the one who meets 40 in the underworld. Also, where's the love for Josh? (laughs) He found someone who can help the gang rescue Elliot. Margot has quite a journey ahead of her. Well, yeah, but as we said, he kind of dropped the ball in realizing he He wouldn't wouldn't come come. to this banquet. (laughs) But we do love Josh. I do. And I'd love to eat some of his food. Oh, how amazing did those Danishes sound? It was making my mouth water. Rishondal says, got to be Alice. Katie punched her in the face and she still helped. But 23 is an honorable mention. Agreed. And in response to Meg's comment, Rabbit said, oh, I think Josh got all the love one needs from High King Margo. (laughs) True, true. 
Dijon said Alice hands down. She's taking her lumps literally while actively helping. <laughs> yes, she's to blame for most of it, but she has accepted and apologized and is trying to change it. Honorable mention to Margot because allowing herself to be dethroned was sad to watch. Well said. Sherry Ava agrees about Margot, saying at the end of the Serpent episode, I am excited and hungry for more. Margot's quest finally begins. It will be epic, especially if it parallels the Magician's Trilogy by Lev Grossman. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. I've talked this up so much, I'm nervous now for <laughs> it to not live up to the hype. The original hair says they were all stars in this episode, but I really feel for Alice overcoming her fear and self-loathing to embrace the possibility of greatness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My own echo chamber says it's really creeping me out. Penny 23 wants to date a replacement Julia. Is that not super weird on both sides, but especially his? I don't know if I agree with that because we saw Marina really was going back to her ex and trying to make it right. It's the same person. But we thought that was creepy too. Uh, I guess so. Maybe We said it was so Marina-like to do that. But if you love someone, you love someone. I think what was weird was Marina not telling her though. Yeah. And deceiving her True. by just going into this. Yeah. Plus, presumably, all of the things that Penny loved about Julia 23 is what he loves about Julia 40. And Elliot Todd said it's similar to, oh, Marina 23 dating the same girlfriend in Timeline 40. There you go. Yep. I mean, yeah, it does weird me out a little bit because it makes me think of people that are just obsessed with the idea of somebody they love. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that he needs to have that instead of the actual person. But like I said, I think he's taking the time to see there is still that essence of Julia there that he fell in love with. So I got to see where this goes in the future. Sarah says, my vote goes to Penny. The Elliot monster is my favorite part of the storyline, and I think Penny contributed the most to it. Although Alice and Katie did a great thing bringing Harriet back. All I could think of was no one caring about Victoria? Me too. And I thought for sure once Harriet got out, that was going to be the first thing she said. But perhaps it's coming. She was so wrapped up in telling Zelda. Well, she said, I have something else I have to take care of. And that might be getting Victoria out. Remember she, she said that to Zelda? probably would have said that to Alice, though, as soon as she came out. Because <clears throat> Alice is the one, I mean, how is she going to get her out? But yeah. maybe we see that conversation soon, I don't know. Or, God, I hope. Well, she couldn't say anything. Wait, 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 maybe time out, time out. Anything. She couldn't say anything to Alice because Alice couldn't understand her. That's why she didn't say anything to Alice. Yeah, but she didn't say anything to anyone. I mean, Yet. the first thing is pertinent, what you can take care of at that point. I have something to take care of, but you need to know, Mom. That when I come back, I want to spend some time with you. In the meantime, please take care of this. I've been watching everyone. This dude is a bad guy. Or is it not top priority because Victoria is dead? Mm. I and mean, I was really hungry. We have to consider and I that, right? <laughs> oh my God. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop, stop. Rebecca said, this one is so hard to choose. I wish I could vote them all plus Zelda. I know it was a tough decision. I was going to do pairings with Zelda, but yeah, she deserves a lot of love. Percy's owner says, as much as I adore Margot, Alice was the MVP this time. She saved Harriet, which will make Zelda reevaluate the library and begin to make peace with herself. Great work by Sarah Gamble. Everyone is at Sarah Gambling. and As they should. Hopefully she gets back to us and we can get her on the podcast. Yeah. And Sherry Ava comments that it was a bridge and still so gripping mm-hmm. this episode, for sure. Ooh, bridge. Double entendre. Mirror bridge. This was about the mirror world. 
And finally, Todd says Olivia Taylor Dudley owned the episode. She and Jason Ralph play such broken, insecure characters with such ease, it makes you think they aren't even acting. Then you see them play someone else and realize how impressive they actually are. Alternate Alice was a real hoot. (laughs) We also have some more comments that are really great from emails or write-ins this week. Ray had a few things. Firstly, he says, Katie's being called the new Marina. Did anyone else notice the styling choices that make her look a bit more like Marina as well? She normally has her hair down to show off those beautiful curls, but it was slicked back this week, reminiscent of Marina's ponytail. And also, I think, reminiscent of her alter ego, Sam, which was her identity as a cop. So maybe she's equally channeling both of those. But I love when costuming or styling or something reflects what's happening internally for a character on screen. And the costuming in this show has always been on point. Yeah, for instance, take note of Margot by the end of the episode is in these traveling clothes. She's got no makeup on. It's a complete switch from her High King look. I think she looked more beautiful there than ever before. Absolutely, I thought so too. Oh, he also brings up a great point. He said he hadn't realized till we talked about it a few episodes ago, the changing of the opening credits to reflect that clean wall with no more graffiti and the library logo. But also, he says the door seems very prominent, possibly referencing Elliot's door out of the monster's control and the happy place. That would be great symbology. And I have one more thing to say, but I'm going to save it for the spoiler section or character review, which we'll be getting to in a minute. First, continuing on with the library theme, Devlin said, I think the writers have mentioned the rise of fascism as an inspiration. I like the metaphor of magic as both a necessary commodity or utility, the plumber and water meter symbology, and a form of currency, and that the authoritarian library is tightening the screws through controlling both forms of access. It also makes sense that the resistance which Katie is plugging into includes both violent and nonviolent strategies with a conflict between them. I'd love for Alice to join up with the resistance and like the idea that Alice and maybe Harriet lead Zelda to possibly reconsider her role and become a double agent. And I think she sent this before this episode even aired. So great foreshadowing for what's going to happen. Also, we have been kind of purposefully avoiding the conversation of the McAllisters because they haven't been an issue on TV. But we've had quite a few write-ins, the most recent from Mara, saying, In the very first episode of this season, we get a small hint. Before Kim Julia turns the corner and opens her break bill's letter, she walks past a row of newspaper dispensers. It's a really quick moment, but if you pause it, you'll see the front page of all the papers reads, Irene is running for public office. Yeah, we did notice that. And we did get a write-in early, I think, after the first episode from someone else as well. A couple of Clatchers. I'm sorry, I don't have your names off the top of my head. But we had surmised this is just another power play of her sort of infiltrating higher level offices and positions. We weren't sure how it was going to feed in and they keep not going back to her all season. So (laughs) I don't really know what to say about that. But yeah, it's good to note that that was there and maybe we'll play a part at some point. I just always, whenever I think of her, I remember that dinner scene, and I feel like we're winning. Yeah. And finally, Lori says, I have a burning question. What happened to Katie's puppy? We should just make a what happened to <laughs> column. You know, we'll do a whole starting podcast, with, what starting with the Candy Witch and the Vial of Q's blood yes. all the way down to Katie's puppy. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, we could keep that list for when we have Sarah Gamble on. <laughs> and she'd be like, I can't comment. I can't comment. <laughs> and we did get a lot more write-ins and a lot more emails. Thank you so much. We read all of them. We can't get back to all of you. And we can't say it all on the podcast. It would be too long. 
but we appreciate every single one of those. And while we're talking about appreciate, we have two more reviews. Thank you to Shauna and JK Todd 2001 We read your five-star reviews and we love them so much. Thank you. They really help us to continue to grow and for other people to find us. We've had a lot of messages lately saying, just found you guys for this episode or this season and the reviews contribute a lot to that. So we appreciate your help. And thank you to the new Patreon members. We just released our bonus podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I put a little skit in there that Christina (laughs) thought I went a little overboard with, but I had a fun time doing it and that's the point. And we're releasing pretty soon the Coffee Break episode, and we will be announcing the movie review as well. As well as another fun magician surprise in store for you soon. Really soon. It's a big surprise, guys. (laughs) Hope you enjoy that. Thank you so much for everyone who's been contributing, joining the Patreon, following us on Twitter and Facebook. It means so much to us. And Amazon. And I always forget to mention this, but we've been getting a lot of emails from Amazon. People are actually clicking on this link. The link I'm speaking about is if you go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, which you should anyways, because we have so much content there. And if you click on the Amazon link there and do your normal shopping, it doesn't cost you any more. It just makes the big Amazon conglomerate give us a little bit. The order of the Amazon. (laughs) Yes, the order, the library of Amazon. Give us a little bit of money off of things that you were going to buy anyway. So if you're going to use Amazon, go to us first, click on the link, do your shopping, know that you're helping us out. Well, next we're going to move into the character review section, which is more of speculation if you want to listen to our thoughts on what's going on. And then we'll give you a heads up before we get into the actual spoilery content. And speaking of big wigs, and we normally don't talk about these things. This is a little bit uh, self-serving, but there are big companies out there who do podcasts. Christine and myself, it's just Christine and myself. We're not a company. But there's uh, companies out there who get screeners, who have six people on the podcast, who have videographers and designers and editors. Oh, don't we wish. And I think we should, instead of being mad, we should feel flattered. And they say imitation is the highest form of flattery. (laughs) There is a podcast out there who week after week... Let's say seems to take influence. Seems to take influence. Let's be nice on that one and give benefit of the doubt. The frustrating part is that they are able to get up quicker than we are. So it oftentimes might seem like we are taking influence, (laughs) which sucks. But um, listen, it's a sharing community. Um, There are times where we get ideas from others, but we make it a point to... Give them a shout out, out. whether it's a clatcher, a podcast, an article. So let's spread the love is all we're saying, right? And we know they're listening. So if you could just spread the love, say, we heard this from the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast. Then it's a two-way street. And we would love that. And we'll give the love right back. Sorry for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next we're going to go into, I have to say, it's not really one character review this time as we didn't have anybody new to discuss for the most part. But in thinking about this mystery we have for the stones. I started to look up ancient myths, Greek mythology, Egyptian, everything we've been looking into that who knows how important it's actually going to be. Turns out there are a lot of myths about stones. Because in thinking that perhaps these aren't pieces to a body we're trying to assemble, such as Osiris, but rather some other form of ritual, let's say, I thought, well, I wonder if there were actually sacred stones, and it turns out there have been. I'm going to mispronounce these names horribly, but the first one is Betalus. 
a word denoting sacred stones that were supposedly endowed with life. These objects of worship were thought to be meteorites. Mm. That's what the stones Ooh, actually were. Those kind of look like it. But of course, in ancient times, that probably seemed like a sign from the gods, right? Stones falling from the heavens. And so they took them and dedicated them to the gods and even revered them as symbols of the gods themselves. They thought there was special power within them. There's another story about Amphalos. In ancient mythology, this was first <laughs> the stone that was supposedly swallowed by Kronos in mistake for his own infant son, Zeus. So Jason, are you familiar with this story? Yes. That Kronos swallowed all of his children and this oh, is how yeah. the gods we know actually later he had to kind of vomit them back up yeah but the very last one gia got wise to this and came up with a plan that she handed chronos a swaddled thing that looked like the baby but she'd actually put a stone in it so that he wouldn't be able to eat her final son zeus and Zeus would be able to avenge his siblings and get them back and that's exactly what happened but they named this stone umphalos it was thought it didn't end there though in another greek myth Zeus is said to have released two eagles at opposite ends of the world and commanded them to fly across the earth and meet at its center. It was at Delphi that the two eagles finally met, and Zeus placed the stone under the glens of Mount Parnassus as a sign to humanity. As this stone was placed at the center of the earth, it was called the Omphalos Stone, the literal meaning of that being navel, so the navel of the world. And of course, we all know what ended up happening with Delphi, the oracle that would predict futures for people and be able to see what was going to happen. So this stone became one of the most famous, although it's not the only supposed Amphalos stone, just the most well-known. Of course, many different areas around the world wanted to take credit for being the center of the world, uh -huh. right? So there's a bunch of these. Now, I don't think it's only four, unfortunately, because huh. that would fit in really nice. Um, but who knows? And then there's one more big story that involves stones. The ancient Greeks believed that there was a flood that destroyed all of mankind. Yes, this is a similar flood story that we get in many different traditions and religions. Here, though, it was caused by the anger of Zeus with the degeneration of humans, including them doing human sacrifice. Mm. He had just had enough, and he said they were going to wipe out and start over. However, two humans survived. There's varying tales about this. Some of them said a god actually tipped them off that the flood was coming. They made it through, but they were too old to reproduce their own children. And so they begged to the gods, how are we supposed to restart humankind? And they were instructed to, as they walked along on their journey, cast stones over their heads. The ones that Deucalion, the husband cast, became men. And the ones that Pyrrha, the wife cast, became women. Oh, wow. Restarting all of humankind. During this flood, did they make a big arc? Not these two. <laughs> okay. I think they actually survived on a chest or a house door. Something really unlikely. Oh, so, so I'll never let go, Jack. Yeah, basically. But They should have took the inside and be like, oh, both of you can fit on that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, either way, I thought that was an interesting thing with everything we've talked about with the gods and humanity. I don't see any of these being the stones that we're talking about in our story, but it's fun to think about. And I love Greek mythology, so why not? Also, Ray wrote in with an idea on this. He says he's glad to be getting some more insight into the monster. He thought originally they were talking about canopic jars, stones with part of the monster in them. But there didn't seem to be many other Egyptian visual clues in that scene. Time will tell. And again, yeah, we've had 
influence from both Greek and Egyptian mythology. We actually had an Egyptian... Oh, I thought for sure. Mummy. (laughs) And I thought for sure Osiris just fit all of this perfectly. I'm not willing to totally give up on that yet. It's really hard to speculate. Well, with all that being said, it just takes us into our real spoiler section. So if you are afraid of that, we will see you next week when we review episode 10. For everyone still here, we got some information about our next episode. 10 is called All That Hard Glossy Armor. (laughs) And the synopsis is Margot Hits Her Step Count. Actually a real clue to the episode this time, which is nice. Nothing food related. They could have talked about her (laughs) eating the danishes. And we do know it's going to be a musical. Yep. It's going to cover the, in some fashion, Margot in the Desert journey that we got in the Love Grossman novels. And we got a tweet from Arjun where he had an image of all of the actors together. And he said, this is the first time we were all together on set at one time. And Margot looks like a badass in that picture. Yeah, well, we know the musical episode from last season, All That Josh, did have a ton of characters in it. We also see the preview of Margot walking along, and it looks like she's hallucinating, and that's where she's seeing... She looks a lizard's... All of her friends. Thing. And apparently that's how they come into play. (laughs) And we know she's on the quest to find the foremost and those ice axes that he has, which could save Elliot. I'm really intrigued and I can't wait till next Wednesday. But also, Melissa wrote in with some amazing information. If you recall, and you've been listening to the spoiler sections, we have had all of the episode titles for the entirety of the season for quite some time. However, they had given us the finale title late and it originally said, no, better to be safe than sorry. That was debated, though, amongst sources, and Melissa says they finally released that it's actually going to be called The Seam. The synopsis is Quentin and Josh get cake, and Quentin reflects on his actions. Cake? Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, the bigger news, though, is the title. And again, one last warning, if you're afraid of spoilers here, she might be on to something. She says she googled Seam and Mythology, and what came back to her was the name Rapso the name of a nymph, which roughly translates to to sew or to stitch, which comes in pretty close to to bind, right? Yes. So she thinks this episode is going to involve finding out that Julia is actually a nymph. Oh. And the binder connects her to whatever type of nature she is attached to, as we know that nymphs are always tied to the nature spirit they belong to. If it's to water, they might be bound to the lake that they're the nymph of. Right. And when Julia was a goddess, they called her Our Lady of the Tree. Yes, that's right. So could we be looking at Julia the Dryad? Oh, I love that. Thank you, Melissa. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Holy (laughs) schmogolies. That was a good tip off, right? Well, that wraps up the magic for this weekend. We'll see you on Twitter Wednesday while we watch the next episode. And Patreon members, keep an eye out for the next episode, the Coffee Break Coffee episode. Break. Yep. We play a fun game in that one. And a lot of the Clatchers are involved. It was a good time. And we did bad, so you can laugh at us. Yes, we did. They got us. They <laughs> definitely got us. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.